direct you this morning to the book of Colossians chapter 1, and we will consider in specific verse 18. Our message this morning is entitled, The Great Head of the Church, and that phrase, that title, The Great Head of the Church, is a very important, significant, historic, theological term to convey to us that the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns over His church, His people, in a very special sense. And so I look forward very much to sharing with you the thoughts that we have in store for you today from Colossians 1.18 about Christ being the great head over His people, His church. Just briefly in review, we're studying together through the book of Colossians. And over the past two messages in particular, we have discovered some very, very rich things about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, from Paul's writings to the church at Colossae, or Colossae, however way you want to pronounce that. We learned two messages ago that we have been translated into a new political power, if you will, the kingdom of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've been translated into it, and as we pointed out, we're translated by no power of our own, just as the Bibles that we have before us are translated from their original language into our language, the language of English. We've been translated into this kingdom. We are His subjects. He is our King, and we have citizenship in this kingdom, not because of anything that we have done, but through His power. We've been quickened. We've been born of the Spirit of God, and as such, we belong to Him. We are His subjects. We are His citizens. Last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus Christ, the man, Christ Jesus, though He were completely human, though He were a flesh and blood and bone and hair man who experienced pain and sorrow and hunger and thirst, That man, Christ Jesus, was the second person of the Godhead, the Word made flesh, God incarnate, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and He, as we learned last week, in Him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. As we'll see today as we continue reading, it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell The man, Christ Jesus, is God incarnate. Today, we continue studying rich Christology from the book of Colossians chapter 1 as we consider the fact that, as we read together from verse 18, He, that is Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. That's our study passage for today. He is the head of the body, the church, who in the beginning, who is the beginning rather, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now over the past couple of weeks, we've talked about the fact that Jesus has translated us into his kingdom. As such, Jesus is what? If it's his kingdom, what does that make him? Well, it makes him the king. 
Last week, we focused in specific on the fact that because he is creator, he's the beginning of all things, all things were created by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. This is not limited to the physical creation. You look out on a beautiful October day. I love the fact that our fall this year has actually been a fall. Usually we go from the Sahara to Siberia, but this year we actually have a fall, and the leaves are slowly turning, and since we had lots of of rain this year, I trust that we'll have a beautiful fall as we go into November. It's kind of amazing here. We have about three days of orange leaves, and then it looks like a barren desert wasteland of cold, cold weather. But we have a beautiful, beautiful uh, October. It's a beautiful fall. Not only is God, is Christ the creator of this beautiful creation that we see on a gorgeous October day that we have today, but Christ is the creator of principalities and powers and As we love to emphasize here, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Recently, my Bible reading took me through the book of Daniel, and in the book of Daniel, we see very powerfully demonstrated that God raises up kings and God sets kings down. We so commonly obsess and focus on politics in our country, not realizing that the God that we serve runs the show. Now, that doesn't mean that every time there's a leader in charge, God put them there. In Hosea, we read that they set up kings, but not by him. They chose kings sometimes because they were better looking and bigger and taller and stronger and more appealing. Certainly, we do that too with our political leaders. But I want you to understand from last week's material that Christ is the king of kings. If you've got a leader in Washington or Montgomery or downtown Huntsville, that's an absolute wretch, don't lose sleep over that. There's nothing you can do about who is in Washington, D.C. as an individual. Is there? Nothing. But we can rest it easy, we can rest easy at night knowing that the God that we serve is king of the president. And I don't know about you, but Over the past 40 years that I've experienced American politics, 35 of those obsessively so, the first five years don't count. I I was writing letters to the president, you know, in Cub Scouts. I stayed up at night to watch Rush Limbaugh when he was on TV. Now, those of you that are old know that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. I obsessed over politics. I can rest easy at night knowing that I'm powerless, but Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And as such, why am I so worried about things in this world? It really sets our hands free from the bondage. We're, we've got a yoke lifted off our shoulders understanding that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. We talked about the fact that He is God incarnate, that He's created all things. He's before all things. By Him all things consist. That is to say, they are upheld by the word of His power. This logically and naturally flows into an even more comforting concept for us to consider today as a New Testament church, that Jesus Christ, the Creator, the Savior, the King over creation, but also His kingdom in a special sense, who created all principalities and powers in the world, whether they be angelic, as we considered last week, the archangels and the angels and all the beings, the creatures that these spiritual beings that we can't even see that do even battle in the world 
good against evil. Christ is the head over his church. He is the head over his people. What we've considered thus far naturally leads into Christ's special reign in his church, which we focus on today, his headship from verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. Now, believe it or not, that's our shortest preface, I think, for 2021. We'll go straight into the passage that we consider today. Scripture uses the term head to convey Christ's leadership and his authority over his people. And as we get to talking about his headship over the body, the church, there are three different contexts that I want to share with you from Scripture of the church or the body. And as we'll see, we're we're going to start with the macro, the overall view of his people from beginning to end, and we're going to zoom in and focus on our lives here as, a, as an individual church body at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. But Scripture uses this term head to convey Christ's leadership over his church. Christ is the head of the church because Christ has saved his people from their sins. They belong to him. They're referred to in the Bible in the New Testament as his house, They are his people, they are his body, they are his temple. And as such, his temple is made up of lively stones, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. You are all an individual stone that has been hewn together and fastened as a building that exists to glorify and honor God in which sacrifices, not physical sacrifices, but the sacrifice of praise is offered over and over and over as the building comes together. That's another metaphor in Scripture for God's people. They are His church, they are His assembly, and as we'll focus on more specifically today, they are His body. Now, we use the word body of Christ so commonly, but I want us to dwell today and focus on momentarily what all that means for us in our individual lives. Your body is made up of what? Of all these different parts that work together and function together for the mutual benefit and survival of the body. We know that there are times when an organ can go bad, and you might have a list of organs that you've had to have removed, things like your appendix or your gallbladder. or you know, I, I've had friends that have had all sorts of parts of themselves taken away because they've become dysfunctional and for the survival of the body, maybe a member of the body, as it were, an organ has to be taken away. Scripture would speak of false doctrine in the book of 2 Timothy as a gangrenous limb. Those who teach false doctrine in the church must be cut off lest that gangrene spread through an entire church body and lead to the ruin of a body. So many things about a physical body are applicable to the body of Christ, which is why The Apostle Paul uses this as a metaphor for New Testament churches to focus on and to dwell on. This phrase head, this term head, Christ the great head of the church, also expresses to us his care for the church. As the head of the church, Christ cares for us. And this phrase head of the church conveys to us the leadership of Christ in the lives of his people. Now, we've already spoken, just to break those three concepts down in brief, on the salvation that Christ has given his people. And we'll come back to that as we consider the language after this. But just think about the salvation that Christ, the great head of the church, has brought the elect family of God, God's people, 
As we read the language that we find in this chapter, he has what? He has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. He is the head. And so we have salvation through Christ. His headship conveys to us the fact that he has saved his people from their sins. Notice the passages that we'll consider next time. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you who were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. That is to say, when Jesus upon the cross of Christ died, we were there represented with him. He took away our sins upon the tree. And as such, what are we referred to as? The body of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. In his body, he suffered, he died, and we were there represented with him. He is our great head and we are the body of Christ. You see the metaphor there of salvation in terms of suffering and body and headship, even as you look to the cross. And so he is our great head because he has saved us from our sins. Secondly, and more specifically, Christ cares for his people as the good shepherd. And he is their head in the sense that a shepherd leads the sheep. Christ leads his people in the world. He feeds them. He nourishes them. And as he leads them and nourishes them as his head, he directs them in life both collectively and individually. Meaning, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have leadership. Christ is our head. He leads us as a people like a shepherd leads a flock of sheep through the wilderness in Judea in the first century. These people understood that terminology. And I know we're mixing metaphors a little bit, but Scripture does this. It describes Christ as both the shepherd and the head. And as head, we have leadership as his flock. He leads us beside still waters. He nourishes us with messages and with Scripture and the presence of the Holy Spirit as we sing and speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He cares for us. He provides for us. He feeds our souls. He does all of this because he's our shepherd. He sends under-shepherds in to watch over and care for his people, to drive away the wolf when the wolf comes in. And as his people, we are led also individually. That is to say, not only does he lead us as our head, as a collective guiding us as a church body, instructing us, giving us opportunity and open doors and people to bless and people to help, people to preach to. And as we make our decisions here as a collective of people, He leads us individually. That is to say, when I have a problem in this world that I need to know how to deal with, not only does He lead us as a group, He leads me as an individual. He guides you as an individual. You can pray to Him. He helps you. He leads you. He guides you. And 
You can know what to do in this world through the leadership of your great head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about this concept of headship, there's one biblical metaphor, one thing that we find in Scripture, I should say, that is used as a metaphor for the relationship between Christ and His church in which the concept of headship is mentioned, and that's the framework of marriage. Turning to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, just briefly reading and observing some things from this particular chapter, Christ is the head of the church much in the same way as the husband is the head of the home. Now, we'll focus in specific, and we're kind of rushing to get to the main point that we want to give you today as we look at Christ's headship over his people from the macro to the micro, as it were. But it's important to understand what it means to be the head. As we look at Christ and his leadership in our church and his governance over all of his people, I think considering Christ's headship as we consider our own headship as husbands is very important. Sometimes we say Christ is the head of the church and maybe you're, you're a newcomer, maybe you haven't grown up in the church where you hear these things expounded upon and you hear that language and you, you hear messages on Christ and his leadership and you might think that's great, but what does it actually mean for me? What does it mean for our church that Christ is the head? Well, let's look to an institution that we are all familiar with, the institution of marriage, the Christian home. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. The husband is the head of the wife. Now, in other epistles, we find husbands and wives and Christ in the church depicted as The husband is the head of the wife, Christ is the uh, the head of the husband, and we find this structure of authority, this hierarchy of authority, if you will, that reveals to us what God would have for our marriage, and it's all built around this structure that we have with Christ. But what I want to do is look at the teaching on husbands and wives and put it in reverse, retrospect, and look at it as the perspective of if this is true for husband and wife, then what this means for our church is that Christ is the head, okay? So we're going to look at it kind of backwards than we usually do. We we usually say, well, Christ is the head of the church, and so husbands, you need to be head of your home. You need to lead. You need to be a mature authority figure, not a... Lord, not a tyrant, but you need to have loving, shepherd-like leadership in your homes, nurturing and caring for and providing and protecting your family. I've, every time we preach through these subjects, we have one sermon where the wives are convicted and two sermons where the husbands are convicted because so much responsibility falls on the husband to lead and to raise his children, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to love his wife. We like to focus on the fact that if husbands are really loving their wives like they ought to, their wives have a far easier job of, as we read in verse 22, submitting themselves unto their husbands. I tell you, every chauvinist in the world loves Ephesians 5.22, and then they skip everything after that. 
because they just want to sit there and be Lord and have someone you know, answer to them, and the wife is the chief slave in the house, the chief servant in the house, and that's all the corruption of marriage that you see in the Old Testament where women are treated like property. The Old Testament doesn't treat them like this. Men treat them like that, and so God gives the Old Testament to specify that, and the New Testament builds on this, that no, women are precious and to be cared for and protected and they're not to be treated like the chief servant of a home. But the wives submit to the husband because the husband is the what? He's the head. We know what that means. If I were to describe a corporation and I were to talk about the president, maybe the chairman of a board, maybe the CEO, the chief executive officer, what, what might we be inclined to call that individual? The head of the corporation. You might say that Bill Gates was the head of a major corporation. You look at these guys that have so much money now, they fund their own private versions of NASA. Does that just make you sick? Anyway. They're the head of a major corporation, and as such, they have billions, yay, some of them coming up on trillions of dollars to be able to build their own spaceships and, you know, fly to orbit and... Sometimes I just wish they'd stay up there, but anyway, they're the head. They're in charge. They steer, they guide, they direct. They're where the buck stops. And that's a category that a lot of people or a phrase that a lot of people don't like to repeat today. Nobody wants to take credit for failures and everybody wants to take credit for success, whether it's a a home or a corporation or a government or a a team or anything else, but that's an expression we all ought to learn as fathers and as pastors. The buck stops here. Did it happen under my oversight? Did I do anything about it? The buck stops here. Why? Because a person is heading a household or a company, a government, a region, etc. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is Savior of the body. Now, again, we, use, we usually love to take this passage and give messages concerning what it means to be a godly husband, but I want to look at this in reverse. Because this is what God says to husbands, this is what Christ is to his people. Christ is the head of the church the way a husband is to be the head of The household. What is Christ to the body? He's the savior of the body. Husbands are to save their wives from anything that they can save their wives from. You men folk, if somebody comes into your house at three in the morning meaning to cause trouble, if you run out the back door and your wife's left in there fending for themselves, we might just exclude you. I might hang pictures of you up in the lunchroom. You might be on a wanted poster. If somebody breaks into your house in the middle of the night, you are the front lines protecting your family from a bad guy. Now, where do you get that? What is Jesus? He's the savior of the body. Can you save your wife from her sins? No, because you're a sinner. But there are things in the world you can save her from, which is Paul's point here. But for this to be true for husbands, Christ is this for his people. And so his headship involves the salvation of his people from their sins. He is the head of the church, the savior 
of the body. He has saved his people from their sins. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. A loving husband, and and I put on the outline, be brief, because we're going to come to this as we get further in Colossians, and I don't want to have to re-preach everything that we... I want it to be fresh when we come to it. But as head of the church, Christ loves his people. Why? Because husbands are to be like Christ as the head of the household, and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so as the head of the church, what did Jesus do? He gave himself for it, dying for his people upon the cross of Calvary, that he might sanctify it with a washing of the water by the word. He has sanctified his people. And we know that we're sanctified through the Spirit. We're sanctified. We're set apart for holy usage before the world began. We're legally sanctified by Christ upon the cross. And then we have practical sanctification through our lives, through the hearing of the Word of God preached to us. Sanctify them through thy truth, for thy word is truth, John 17. Jesus has sanctified and does sanctify his people, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, so ought men to love their own bodies, their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. And by the way, one thing that I've learned at 40, if you notice, I kind of miss words here. Eyes don't work as good. Got a vision appointment coming up in the near future. Probably going to be wearing glasses. So anyway, I don't want to be like those guys that are like looking at it like this. So glasses are a great piece of technology. We're primitive, but that's good technology. So are men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. No man has ever ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord of the church. As head, what does Jesus do to his people? He nourishes his people. He cherishes his people. He loves his people. And so husbands ought to do that to their own wives. No man hates his own body. You don't abuse your own body on purpose. You don't invite pain or suffering. You do all you can to escape it. And so men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Why? Because Christ is the head over the body. His church is his body. His church is his people. The body of Christ is a metaphor for the people of God. And so I think considering Christ's headship, we'll go back to Colossians 1, over the church in light of husbands being the heads of their households and the head over their wife to love and cherish and provide for the wife. I think that's very important in catching a glimpse into what Christ is for his people. Now, as we said today, we want to begin with the macro and extend to the micro. We want to look at Christ and his headship over all of his people. Secondly, we want to look at Christ as head over the militant or corporate or visible church at any given time. And then lastly, we want to bring it home and look at Christ as the head over the local church, which to us is what? Well, it's Flint River, Primitive Baptist Church, located at 641 Moontown Road in Brownsboro, Alabama. If you're watching today and you didn't know where we were, well, now you do. 
And you can, you can find us. I don't give out my personal address. I used to say that, you know, reference the people that live at XYZ address, and then it occurred to me, hey, dummy, you're live streaming on the Internet. So those of us that worship at 641 Moontown Road, that is, that is the church to us. That's where we see the church most clearly and intimately. He is the head of the church, the body, head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. As we begin looking at Christ as the head over all of his people throughout all times, and his people over the church visible, the militant church, the church corporate, if you will, the institution of the church at any given time, and the church as it's found here in our location, our particular church body. The concept of headship conveys to us something that is helpful for us to think about and dwell on. We already mentioned the fact that a body is made up of members. Now, as we think about the macro application, that Christ is the head over his people from the beginning of time to the end of time, His people, as his body, is made up of members. As we think about the functioning of the church corporate in the world, all of the people who have professed their faith and been baptized in his name and who follow him and worship him throughout the world in true churches, those bodies, or that body rather, is made up of what? Members. But as we look at the church here at Flint River... The church is a body that is made up of members. Now, as we think about the headship of Christ and we focus on the different aspects of his leadership and you think about that as a shepherd, as an executive, leading and guiding and nourishing and nurturing and providing, I want us to also focus on the fact that being the body, Christ as our head, means that we all have individual roles and abilities, and responsibilities in the church. Every single one of you is a member of a body, the body of Christ. Now, Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians 12. You don't have to turn there. As a way to understand our respective gifts in the church. I love the fact that this morning we had five different people already participate in the worship, and you think about that, we don't have a worship team. We don't put on a production. If this room ever fills with smoke, it is not a fog machine. Either the Holy Spirit has descended in the pillar of the cloud like in the temple, or more than likely the building is on fire, and so we run to any of these Exits. You know, the county made us put light-up exit signs over all the doors as if you didn't know how to come in and out. you got two options. They both go in, they both go out. If there's ever smoke filling the room, it's, it's, not, it's not the production team. But I love the fact that functioning like a New Testament church in the first century, focusing, or functioning as a church would in the, the New Testament age, we've had... I don't know how many people are here today come into a room and sing. I say we've had five or six people participate. We've had everyone participate. I don't know how many are here, but we've all lifted up our voices 
in praise. But we had three different brethren lead in the singing. We had a brother open with prayer. We had a different brother lead us in scripture reading and our public prayer before the message. And now we have another person standing before you trying to go through the word. And there are invisible things that you didn't notice take place. We've had a couple of different guys in the sound room running things. And I can't tell you how many sisters I saw bring in food for us to eat at lunch today. What is that? It's a body functioning as one. Now, in your physical body, you have toes and feet and legs and you have your your you know core and you have your arms and you have your neck you have a a head and eyes and ears and mouth all of these different parts of you make it where you can be here today you ate breakfast i trust you walked to your vehicle you drove it here with your hands you walked inside you participated you sang it took all of this that you called you to do that and every single part of you is a member of your body. Think of it, we, we call it today organs or parts, but biblically the word is member. Christ's body is made up of members. Now, Paul uses this to, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, talk about the importance of every single part of the body. Verse 14, the body is not one member, but many. The body is not one member, but many. Christ is the head. Imagine if it was just the head. That's not God's will. It's not God's will. No, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I'm not of the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the foot feels sorry for itself because it's not a hand, is it any less important than any other part of the body? No. Now, there are parts of church that are more visible than others, the song leaders, they get to stand before everyone and lead a congregation in hymn singing. What, a, what an important role that is in the church. Oh, we are so blessed here at Flint River with great song leaders. My dad has to lead singing. Some Sundays he prays, and most Sundays he preaches. You ever heard the expression, a one-man band? You ever seen a one-man band? He's wearing a backpack. And he's carrying a bass drum, and usually there's a harmonica or some other horn that comes down, and maybe an accordion, and you know he's, he's banging the bass drum with his feet while he plays the accordion, and then there's a harmonica. How miserable it is for a pastor to have to do all of that. How miserable it is probably for a congregation for the pastor to have to do all of that. I'm very thankful for so many diverse members of this body who can do so many different things. So many different things. And every single thing is important, even if it's not standing up and leading the singing. If it was bringing some food today, or praying with someone, or simply being kind to someone, or giving, or any other thing. Romans 12 goes through a long list of important gifts in the church, and some of them you don't look at and say, well, that's just grand and glorious. I bet they get a lot of attention for that. Showing mercy. Oh, what an important spiritual gift do we find in the church and people who show mercy. And that's one of the gifts that Paul mentions. Giving with cheerfulness, good judgment, exhortation. All of those gifts 
belong to members that make the body function. And this is true on the macro and it's true on the micro. Whether we're looking at the church throughout all the world or we're looking at those who gather here at Flint River on a Sunday morning. Paul talks about the fact that God set members, everyone in the body as it has pleased Him. Whatever God has blessed you with as a spiritual gift, He gave to you. He gave to you to be used here to His glory. Now, if, let's say, I can't lead singing, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm not a preacher, but I'm good with a leaf blower. You know what? That's a gift to be used here. Yeah, did y'all pull up today to three inches of leaves on the parking lot? No, because somebody took a leaf blower to it. Now, you didn't notice that, but it happens. Somebody cleans the gutter. Somebody vacuums the floor. Somebody cleans the restrooms. All of that is important to this church being what it is. We like to focus on that which gets the most attention, but I'm telling you, whatever gift God has given you in His church, it's to be used for His glory, and it pleases Him, and He expects us to utilize those gifts. And every one of those gifts is important, because we are His what? We're His body. And He is our what? He's our head. He is the head of the body, the church, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Beginning with the macro, Christ is the federal head over all of the people of God from the beginning of time until the end of time. As we think about the headship of Christ, it's important to think about His federal headship. What do we mean by federal head? That expression federal head is not one that's contained in Scripture, but the concept most certainly is. What we mean by that We in our country have a federal government, right? It's a representative republic. We have people who represent us, and they make decisions for us that apply to us, right? For better or for worse. Somebody was complaining about the government the other day, and I'm like, hey, it's a representative republic. That ought to scare you more about the people who live here than the people who are there. I mean, we always have the government we deserve because we put them there. That ought to terrify you more than whoever's in Washington, D.C., doesn't it? The fact that that's what we look like as a culture now. Ooh, that's terrifying. But we have federal representatives. That's an old word that's used to convey one representing all that is under their authority or within a certain framework. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 and verses 13 through 17 give us a parenthetical statement. And so we'll read around the parentheses. Romans 5, 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, Adam was the federal head of humanity. Adam represented all humanity. When Adam sinned, all of humanity sinned with him. Now you might think, I didn't have a choice in that. I wasn't there. Well... You were represented by your father, Adam, and at the same time, biblically, you were yet in his loins, and so you were there because you came from him. You are Adam. I am Adam. We are all Adam because we came from Adam. We are but Adam multiplied. How many of you have heard that expression before? Adam multiplied. You're Adam, and so am I. So we can think, well, I wouldn't have done that. You did do that because all you are is a multiplication of the guy that did that. 
He's the federal head of all humanity. And when he sinned, death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Verse 18, reading around the parentheses, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Listen to this. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men to justification of life. Now, clarification. Do all men without exception have justification unto life? Well, no, because there are people that will be in hell. And so all men there doesn't mean every human being without exception or every human being without exception is saved just like every human being in Adam has condemnation in Adam. What this means in the construct of a federal head and federal headship, everyone represented in Adam in Eden when Adam sinned, sinned with and in Adam. Likewise, every single person in Christ was represented by Christ upon the cross of Calvary and is saved not because of what they've done, but because of what their head has done for them. Now, this is funny, and you've probably heard me say it before. Did you accept Adam as your personal sinner to become a sinner? No. Nor did you accept Jesus to make him your Savior. He's your Savior, which is why you love him, because he has translated you from darkness into the kingdom of his God's dear Son. We're represented by him, as we read earlier in this passage, when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the what? The ungodly. In Adam all died. In Christ, all in Christ shall live. He's the head of the body. He's the savior of the body. He's the federal head that represented them. And because he represented them upon the cross of Calvary, they stand redeemed in him today. As death has, as sin hath reigned unto death, verse 21, even so grace, might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. What's true for Adam and death is true for Christ and salvation, the salvation of his people. That's a beautiful concept. It's one that I absolutely love speaking about. Christ is the federal head over all his people. Now, we begin with the macro, and what we're talking about there when we talk about Christ as the head over all his people, sometimes we refer to this as the church triumphant or the invisible church as opposed to the militant or corporate church or the local church. And so again, beginning with the macro, going to the micro, Christ is the head, the federal head and the savior of his body in this first sense. He's the savior of all of his people from the beginning of time until the end. This is the church triumphant, redeemed by the blood of Christ, who are gathered together in glory. Now, it's helpful to remember as we talk about the church that most fundamentally, the word church means what? It means assembly. What happens in heaven? Every single heir of promise is finally and eternally gathered. Oh, there's a gathering in heaven. The gathering of the souls of God's people. When we read of the death of the patriarchs, and so many of the beloved men of God and women of God in the past, when we read of them dying in Scripture, what happened? They were gathered unto their people. Have you ever noticed some of them are buried in different countries? That's not talking about their body going to the family cemetery. 
They're gathered under their people because their souls go to be with God in glory. What is a gathering? Well, the gathering of God's people is called church. You have the invisible church, the triumphant church, which is every single redeemed person from the beginning of time until the destruction of this world. Men like Abel, men like Enoch, men like Noah, men like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Samson, and Gideon, and David. I'm just rattling off Hebrews chapter 11. But those men belong to the church triumphant, even though they weren't part of a New Testament assembly, were they? The thief on the cross never was baptized and joined the New Testament assembly, did he? But he's a part of the church triumphant. He's there with Christ redeemed in glory. How do I know that? Because Jesus said today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. He's a part of the church, not Flint River, not the visible church of baptized, called out believers. Oh, but he's a part of the church triumphant in glory. He's a part of that assembly. Christ is the head over all his people as their Savior, the head over the church triumphant, the invisible church, the body of Christ in that sense. Sense number two, taking the magnifying glass and looking a little closer, Christ is the head over the militant, corporate, or visible church at a given time. Now, as we use the word body in church, sometimes we have reference to all of the people who profess their faith and are baptized in his name, those who keep his ordinances and honor them with their life as they are scattered across the globe. And this is, again, the visible or the militant church. Just briefly about the militant or the visible church, this church, much like the church triumphant, The church triumphant is made of people who are what? People who are saved. The visible church is made up of people who are saved, yes. People who have professed their faith in him. And this, as an organization, was founded by the Lord Jesus Christ in his personal ministry some 2,000 years ago as an institution or an organization. Where do you get that from? The book of Matthew chapter 16, Jesus begin ask, begins asking his disciples who people say he is, and you know the list. They, some people say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he asks him, whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. How did Peter know this? We don't have to wonder, Jesus tells us. Jesus answered, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee. If you know Jesus is the Christ, flesh and blood has not revealed that unto you. How do you know that? Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven, has what? Has revealed it unto thee. If you know that Jesus is the Christ, God's Father has revealed His Son to you. Now, Matthew chapter 11 talks about this. Jesus actually speaks to his father about this. I thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. No man knows the Father. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. No man knows the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. We know him through revelation. 
God revealing himself to you. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father in heaven, Peter. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus built his church in the sense of the organization, the called out assembly in his personal ministry, and he paid for her as his bride upon the cross of Calvary. Put another way, we know who belongs to the church triumphant when they walk with the visible church. How do I, we identify God's people in this world? We identify them as they profess their faith and they follow after him. Otherwise, we have no idea who God's people are in this world. But we know that those who follow him in spirit and in truth, that love him and, and praise him and pray to him and worship him, we know that those people belong to him. Now, this statement, thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. Peter is a stone. Peter himself said, we are all lively stones built upon the chief cornerstone of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the stone upon the upon which the church is built. And more specifically, the revelation of Jesus to sinners is the rock upon which the church is built. Divine revelation. The church is built upon divine revelation. Now, we've talked about the church invisible, the church triumphant, his people from all times, out of all nation, kindred, and tongue. We've talked about his militant, visible church in the world, the institution of the church corporate, as it's sometimes called. Let's bring it home. Christ is the head of the local church. This is the most visible way for us to see and realize these truths because it's what we experience. Now, as we talk about, very briefly, for about two minutes, the church as it is in the local church, and Christ is his headship over it. Let me just say, and you listen to this, I know it's late, there is no greater authority, ecclesiastical authority in the world, greater than the local church. Now you might think, I don't believe, wait a minute, there's no greater authority? You're telling me that this church, Flint River, answers directly to Christ, her head? Exactly. In the first century, and you see this very vividly depicted, not only in the epistles, but also in the book of Acts, each church answers directly to Christ. Now, there were apostles, sure. And sometimes when there was theological controversy, the apostles and elders gathered, gathered to sort it out. But even these apostles who had greater authority than any preachers living today, because there are no apostles today. There are no apostles today. If, if someone claims to be an apostle, say, prove it by giving the signs of an apostle, I'll meet you at the hospital, I'll meet you at the morgue. Because apostles had the ability to speak in languages they'd never learned. Let's try that one. They could heal the sick, they could raise the dead, and when they passed off the scene, the gifts of the apostles, the signs of the apostles, departed with them. These men had greater authority, but even these men as it related to church discipline, had to tell the churches what they ought to do, and the churches still had to do it. When the apostles pass off the scene, 
You have each individual congregation answering directly to their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because each individual congregation is the body, as it were. What's the head? Christ. There's no neck between the body and the head that stands between Jesus and his people. No organization, no association, no denomination that stands between the great head of the church and the people of God. We answer directly to Jesus. Now, early in church history, bishops initially, at the time of the writing of the New Testament, the word bishop simply was synonymous with that of pastor. It meant superintendent or overseer. And each assembly had an overseer. And this is what we find referred to as the angel of the church of in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. You have a messenger of God who, much like we have today, is in the position of authority to lead and guide a church as an under-shepherd. They follow him as he follows Christ. They follow him as he follows Christ. If he doesn't follow Christ, what do they do? They don't follow him. What do we have today? We have calling time. What is calling time? When you select the pastor of this church. If the church has a pastor that's not following Christ, you know what the church does? Church gets rid of that pastor. They don't have to go to some overarching organization and get permission. Biblically, they simply handle it. They deal with it. Jesus talks to the church at Ephesus. That church at Ephesus had tried those who claimed that they were apostles and were not and had found them liars. That church had dealt with false teachers as a church. Sometimes our church has to deal with things such as that. And it's painful, but for the sake of the body, we have to deal with it. I know I said two minutes, it's been three and a half. I am watching the clock. Bishops came to rule over a city of churches. It evolved into that. It did not begin as that, and church history is clear. Eventually, over the authority of the bishops, regions appointed their own patriarchs. Patriarch of Jerusalem, the patriarch of Rome, so on and so forth. And you had one man in a position of authority over the bishops, in a position of authority over the elders, who were in authority over the churches. What grew out of that is the papacy when in the nation, the Roman Empire, the church was adopted by the state and the patriarch of Rome became the most powerful preacher in the Roman Empire. And the next thing you know, you have what over time grew into Roman Catholicism and That was not healthy for the people of God. Read history about it. It was just not good. We're Baptists for a reason. By the way, this is Baptist Ecclesiology 101. Every church answers directly to her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no hierarchy or overarching organization above the local church. Along those lines, I'm not the head of this church. Everybody say amen. I'm not the head of this church. I serve this church. I I pastor this church. I'm the overseer of this church. I'm the bishop. I'm the superintendent. But I'm not the head of this church. 
Am I your Savior? No. I'd make a pretty pathetic Savior. We would all be lost. No deacons, no members, no one is head but Christ. Now, along this last point, this means that we answer directly to Christ. In our history, in the past hundred years, peer pressure has been a very powerful driving force for what some primitive Baptist churches do. Do you know we don't answer to the boss preacher at a church in the next town over, the next state over, the next city over? We don't answer to the moderator of an association somewhere or some church somewhere that sets itself up and tells us what we have to do or else. You know that's happened in the Primitive Baptist? You know who we answer to? To Jesus. I'm a whole lot more concerned with whether or not Jesus Christ is happy with us than I am some church in some other city. Please say amen. amen. Our goal is to please the Lord which bought us. You know why that's so sweet? You read Revelation 2 and 3. Aren't you glad that we're not held accountable for the problems at Laodicea, maybe? Ephesus was held accountable for Ephesus' issues. Thyatira for Thyatira's issue, Pergamos for Pergamos' issues, Laodicea for Laodicea's issue. Each individual church answered directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not answerable for the successes or the failures of a church across town. And while that may relieve a burden from our shoulders, it also ought to scare us to death. Because just as with the churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3, we answer to Jesus for what we do as a church. And that ought to cause us to approach unto his throne with much trembling. Lastly, that he might have the preeminence that all we do, in all we do, we desire that Christ have the preeminence among us. Christ alone has saved us. Christ alone reigns over us. Christ alone is to be worshipped. Christ alone is to have the preeminence in this individual church body because he is the head of the church, the body, even at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church, I hope and I pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this that we've shared with this beloved group of people today. We pray, Lord, and we just thank you that you're our head. Thank you, Lord, that your son reigns and rules over us, that we answer to him. And no matter what anybody else in the world thinks of us, Lord, if we come together and we please you, that's all that matters. We pray, Father, that our great head Christ would lead us and nurture us and nourish us, that he would shepherd us. We thank you, Father, that he's not only our head, but he's the head over all of his people a people that is in every nation, kindred, and tongue from the beginning of time even unto the end. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us from our sins through our federal head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us, we pray in his name, and amen.